Welcome to the third episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Focus. Focus, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself for those who are unfamiliar with you? Yeah, I am a programmer in the Washington, D.C. area. The things that I tend to focus most on in my day job is distributed simulation. And recently, we put, I put together a system that uses Clojure and Clojure Script and some Java thrown in there. There's some JavaScript as well. And it's, it's an experimental system that sort of aggregates, provides a way to aggregate a bunch of different simulation models and offer them up as, as web services. So I've been spending a lot of time with, with interesting technologies trying to further the, the simulation cause, I guess. I also wrote a couple books, co-authored one called The Joy of Clojure with the great and brilliant programmer uh, Chris Hauser, and one by myself called Functional JavaScript, which was, I guess, uh, released about six months ago, something like that. It's all blur. You were fairly well known in the Clojure community due to your contributions of Joy of Clojure, and you were also on the Clojure core team for a while, were you not? Yeah, that's right. I was an employee of, of a company called Relevance, and they did a lot of, they provided a lot of time and support to uh, closure the language and the, the core, a lot of the members of the core team were also relevance employees and so we, we tended to aggregate on Fridays and spend all of our time working on closure itself. So since I left relevance, I haven't been as active in closure development, but I, I do get in there from time to time as whenever time allows. I'm merely a user now, I suppose. Has it been an interesting change looking from the user side versus the core side? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing is that there's a lot of things that go on that I do miss. You know, there, there were a lot of engaging conversations happening about Clojure and the industry as a whole, other programming languages and the like. So I, I really do miss that. And so that, that's one aspect that's very different. Another is that those, those conversations often, uh, although not always, manifested in language features. And, and one thing that came out since I, since I did leave the core team was something called Core Async, which is an asynchronous library written in Clojure by Timothy Baldridge and, and some other people. David Nolan has contributed on the Clojure script side, and other members of the core team have, have contributed to that. So that sort of came out after I left, and that was a nice surprise. But it would have been nice to be a fly on the wall, you know, during those conversations, because it really is a, really, a very nice piece of software. You did some functional programming before Clojure as well, correct? I think I've heard something about you working in Scala. Yeah, I was a Scala programmer, I guess, to put it bluntly. I, I, I wrote Scala for about three years, and I, I actually I liked it very much. I was, at one point, I, I, had, I had had commit rights to the repository, but any contributions that I may have pushed forward have long been dematerialized, I assume. But that wasn't my first functional programming language. I did a lot of functional programming with, with Scheme and Common Lisp in, in graduate school and during my undergraduate studies also. Although a lot of my graduate school studies were in were using uh, logic programming languages. So you've pretty much been indoctrinated early on with functional programming from your education as well and not having to make the jump in the more recent years then. Yeah, that's right. I was somewhat fortunate to fall into a program that used Common Lisp. Well, actually, it wasn't Common Lisp at the time that I was there. It was a language called XLisp, which is an object-oriented Lisp and you know, I think probably common list programmers would, would recognize it. And so I, I do feel very fortunate that I was able to do that. I know that there are a lot of programs that sort of take a more quote-unquote practical bent on programmer education. And so I, was, I, I fell in love with Lisp almost immediately. 
I, I could see its elegance right away. Although I didn't start off as a as a programmer in undergrad, I was I was a philosophy major. But I, I would say that Lisp is one of the reasons why I decided to change. What appealed to you about Lisp when you were starting to work with it? For those who may be unfamiliar with Lisps in general, or those who have Lisp, what made it appeal to you specifically? You know, it's it's been a while, so I, I can't remember exactly what what my thinking was back then. And but I, I will say that I was fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to do some programming as a younger kid before I went to college. But the programming I had done then was I started off in BASIC and moved on to Pascal. And I don't know, it's just when, after using BASIC and Pascal, going to a language like, like Lisp was sort of a mind bender. I, I, and, and I did like the, it was an exciting language to use, regardless of the task that I was trying to, to accomplish. I always felt in BASIC and Pascal that it was sort of, like work, you know. I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that that sounds right, but it always felt like I was uh, working too hard at something that I felt should have been fun. No, I get what you mean. Where it's, I kind of mentioned this on the previous episode with Uncle Bob, where some of theirs, some of the imperative stuff seems to be very repetitive, whereas Lisp and some of the other functional languages help clean up that concept really nicely and make things really straightforward. Things, uh, as I mentioned, was the map and reduce and a lot of those fold slash each based functions. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I guess one of the things that appealed to me was that in a language, say, like Pascal, where even if you're trying to perform something as simple as a loop, and you're never trying to, your, your goal is never to make a loop. Your goal is to accomplish some kind of, to, to accomplish a goal. And, and a loop is a mechanism for accomplishing that goal. And and whatever your goal was, I always felt like in Pascal that was the goal was sort of spread out over a large area, and you had to set up some counters and temporaries, and and before you even got into the loop. And when you were in the loop, you had to you had to build up things, and whatever your goal was that motivated you to create that loop was sort of lost in the haze. And when I first started using Lisp, I, I really felt like, and this was even before I discovered macros, that the goal became more apparent even at a glance. You could see what you were trying to achieve in a small amount of code, and so I, I really appreciated that. You kind of also mentioned some logic programming. Is that something that evolved from your functional programming, or is that something that kind of came differently? Were you kind of building? Because I know sometimes it's the examples are, let's build a prologue-style system using a Lisp or another language, or was that just a completely separate kind of evolution where it's like, and now this course or this task actually uses logic programming? Well, I'm not sure that I have a good answer for that. I I think that uh, you're right that that a lot of, let's say, if you read a lot of functional programming books, and I have, you'll often see implementations of of logic engines. And I don't know exactly what the reason for that is, but I, I suspect that it has something to do with the desire to try and recapture in your code, the goal that you're trying to achieve. And so when you have an imperative language that the goal that you're trying to achieve is, is as I said, it's sort of spread out over a large area. With functional programming, you can bring it down and you, you, can, you can sort of get that into a smaller footprint. But even still, in, in some tasks, even then, using functional programming, the goal that you're trying to achieve has been sort of spread out over a, a larger design space. So where logic programming languages come in is where especially a language like Prolog, where if you have a task that you're trying to search over a large area space or do a calls out for a tree search, 
and there are a few languages that are better than, than something like Prolog because it is in itself a language of searching, performing tree-type searches on data sets. So the point I'm, I'm getting at is that I think that there's a really natural progression from that imperative to functional to logic to try to capture the meaning of your programs. So I think that's probably why you see that often. And, and in my own case, it was really just it went along with the territory, and, and in grad school, my focus was on artificial intelligence. So when you're studying artificial intelligence in grad school, you tend to do a lot of logic programming. Yeah, I took an AI course as either late undergrad or early grad, and I remember it was, I believe it was the Norvig book was our textbook, and it was, here's Lisp, and then you kind of build up a small little amounts of logic programming with that. Right. And and I think it's always impressive because you can do stuff like that in very little code. Yeah. So I would kind of like to touch on functional JavaScript that you that you mentioned that book that you wrote. Since JavaScript, from everything I've heard, these are more secondhand stories of about creator Brandon Ike trying to design an actual Lisp while being kind of constrained to make it look like Java. How did you kind of determine the functional JavaScript book needed to be written? in the sense of knowing that that ability was there, but what kind of made prompted you to bring about and highlight those features? I, actually, I was kind of amazed that it hadn't been written. I think that having read my share of JavaScript books, almost every single one mentions function. You, you can't write a JavaScript book without mentioning functions. They're so prevalent. But there were very few books that did more than, say, a chapter's worth of material on taking a functional style. Now, I hesitate to say that there are none, because there are. I mean, even, even Crockford's book does touch on it quite a bit. But that's never really the focus of the book. And so I, I felt like there was space for a book like Functional JavaScript that really tackled it head-on and said, this is what functional programming is. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's what really motivated it. it. It's less of a discovery that JavaScript has these features, and so... I think maybe a book should be written about it. It was more of, I already know what functional programming is, and maybe there are other people who do not. And so this is an opportunity to teach something that I'm passionate about and maybe could be uh, useful to others. Yeah, it's one of those, I kind of remember knowing that functions are first class when I was digging into JavaScript and learning it more than just the, oh, I know JavaScript. It's it's a C-style language, so everything holds true. But it was down to digging into Clojure and some other more functional styles after having read some other functional books as well that I started to appreciate it and dig in a little bit and realize, well, if this is a functional-based language, let's take advantage of some of the functional constructs. And it seemed, sadly, that I had to go to underscore at that point to be able to go in and take advantage of some of these because the browsers weren't supporting it at that point. And when I saw your book come through, it was one of those books I went and got immediately and now is on my recommendation of list of books for people to do with JavaScript because there are certain aspects where it just cleans up JavaScript so much, it seems, on my opinion. So Well I, I thought so too, and that, that was one of the one of the approaches that I took is that JavaScript frankly is a very flawed language. It has a lot of problems with it. But you know, there are books like Crockford's book who he tackles those problems straight on. So I don't want to get into that kind of book, but I think that in some ways, by taking a functional approach, a lot of the problems that he that he talks about become moot or don't really come up as much. And using a, a library like Underscore, and this is exactly why I think Underscore was a good idea, is that Jeremy and, and his contributors, Jeremy 
is the the creator of the underscore library he he and his contributors have spent a lot of time tackling the problems of cross browser incompatibilities and and the like and I definitely didn't want to get into that 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 would have just muddied the waters of the point that I was trying to make and that's just functional programming with javascript yeah and it was one of those it was kind of sad to realize that you needed all of those as a language that is highly functional i guess i should say but it missed a lot of those functional constructs that you would kind of expect to not have to build out of those base parts. Right, and yeah, that's a good point that you make. And JavaScript supports functional programming. I guess, I guess that would probably be the right way to say it. But there's a lot of things missing from it at, at the language level that sort of fight against you when you're doing functional programming. And, and those, those things come out in a library like Underscore because with a language like JavaScript where, where anything goes, you're, you're passing references around to objects that anyone along the line can change, you, you sort of have to stick your head in the sand and say, we're, we're doing ostrich purity here. This is, we're, we're just sort of going to not change anything and hope no one else does. And by doing that, you, you, can, you can get a lot of benefit out of it, even though perhaps it's not a language like Clojure or Haskell or Erlang that is really functional down to its very core. Yeah, and it was one of those, along those lines, it's, they explained functional, as you pointed out in like Crockford's book, and the other one that I really like was the JavaScript patterns. Mm-hmm. It's, they talk about functional programming and closures without actually talking about that when they're talking about how to create objects and modules. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those, when you start to kind of see how they integrate, it's kind of, I've had the clarity as, I don't, I don't know where it first originated, but there was that kind of co-in about the master and the apprentice about what, what are closures and what are objects, where a closure is a poor man's object and an object is just a poor man's closure. And it's one of those that seems to be the definition of JavaScript in that case. Yeah, it, and you're you're right. I mean, when you look at a lot of the JavaScript written, I mean, it's it's taking that to the the nth degree, I guess, because uh, everything of of interest is done by attaching stuff to to functions. And so, with that, you also did lemonade. I'm assuming is I'm pronunciation, since you're missing the since you don't have the e at the end, or is it pronounced lemonade? Well, I, I like to say lemonade just because that's that's pretty fun. Okay, so lemonade is that kind of a extension of the underscore libraries, or is that kind of your own take on that kind of concept? Well, it it started out as an extension on underscore. I, I think really what it, what it was is I, I started writing that book, you know, the the functional JavaScript book, and so I, I wanted a library to to play around with and. And at the same time, I had I had a, a driving motivation from my my work that that had an existing JavaScript code base that frankly was kind of a mess, and so I wanted to be able to use a library that I felt was powerful. So it started out as an extension to underscore, which added a lot of functions that were missing that I felt were missing, and that I had learned via Clojure that I made extremely good use out of. So I, I added a lot of things that, that were in the Clojure core libraries. And eventually, Jeremy, again, the underscore creator, he asked if, if I was interested in using some of that stuff as the basis for an underscore contributors library. And so there is a project out there called underscore contrib that is basically Lemonade 0.9, I guess. And so it truly is now an extension to underscore. So since then, I've, I've sort of gone my own way now, and, and Lemonade is something completely different, which is just sort of thinking about how, how can we make it functional in a, along a different vector. And so I use a lot of 
currying and there's some monadic structures in there and it's more of a, a scratch pad for ideas at the moment, whereas underscore contrib is the real library, I suppose. Okay, yeah, I was seeing that, and I was like, I knew in regards of reading the book that you mentioned that it was kind of the underscore extensions, but when I looked at the GitHub page a couple of days ago, it looked like it had kind of covered some of the features and kind of pulled some underscore stuff back into it to extend some other stuff, so I wasn't quite sure Yeah, right. how so- that was going now. By building on top of underscore, you get a lot of stuff like map and filter, reduce, all of, all of those good functions that it provides. But one of the problems that I always found with underscore is that it has its arguments in the wrong order. And so what I mean by that is in functional libraries, you'll often see a function like map where it takes a function and, and some structure and uh, applies that function over each element and structure like an array. The function comes first, but in, in underscore, the, the collection comes first. So, But by doing it that way, it, it sort of runs counter to other kind of functional ways of, of composing things by like currying and partial application. Now, you can definitely do that. You can still do those things when the collection comes first, but it, it feels sort of fiddly, I guess, when you do that. So when I finally pushed everything over to underscore contrib and started playing around with Lemonade again, I flipped the arguments and then started currying every single function. So now a map, it does take a function first and then an array, and it'll do what map does and underscore. But if you don't give it a collection, it'll return another function, which is waiting for an array, and which will eventually do the map if it's ever given an array again. So it's all the functions are curried now. So that, I find that leads to fairly fluent code, I guess, for some value of fluent, I, I suppose, if, if we're talking about JavaScript. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big experiment right now, and I, I, don't know, I don't know if I'll get serious with it, but I've, I've enjoyed working with it. So is it kind of the scratch pad of trying to take some of, like, have you tried to take some of the other closure core things that have been done? Things like generically reducers, where it's almost lazy evaluation of the functions? Is that kind of the stuff that you've been playing with with that as well? Where you well, can kind of build the functions on top, I guess, for those who aren't familiar with the reducer library and closure, my understanding is that it will reduce through the list, it'll it'll run through the collection once and apply those functions as needed instead of running through the list for every single function that will need to be applied to it. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but I think to answer your original question is that I've gotten it, I've sort of gotten to the point where I've kind of pushed currying as much as I think that you can in, in, in JavaScript. And, and now I've sort of run into a language level limitation where I have these functional operators and now the base language is, is really kind of getting in the way because now everything is mutable, so maybe it needs to work off of persistent data structures. And, and by persistent, I, I mean something like an immutable data structure that is efficient as functions change it along the way. So, But, you know, obviously the, the base JavaScript structures, objects, and, and arrays are, are not persistent. I mean, you change them in place, and if you're doing functional programming, you have to make copies of them as you go. So there's a lot of, I'm, I'm sort of stand at a crossroads, and, and I haven't decided if or how I would go down that road at this point. So, uh, you know, I can, I can add something like reducers, which would, which would maybe uh, allow some kind of speed ups. But, you know, there is, a, there is a JS reducers library out there already, and I don't think I would want to duplicate that, that work. So yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what what what's next for Lemonade. It's a usable library now, and to make it something more than what JavaScript supports 
directly, I think that it may actually suffer in, in usability for the for general purpose JavaScript programming. Guess it was kind of the question of trying to figure out how far you pushed it, so that for people interested in seeing how far you can kind of push JavaScript in the functional language and trying to find those boundaries. Yeah, and there's there are there are a lot of libraries out there that you know JavaScript by its nature sort of fosters the reinvention of of, of the wheel and <laughs> and the caveman who invented the wheel. But yeah, you know, it, there's a lot of libraries out there that push a functional style even further. You know, one one that jumps to mind is something like Bilby by Brian McKenna and and his other library which is called Fantasyland that that really, really pushes it even further than I have. I, I, I was sort of exploring along the vector that includes, you know, fully curried functions. So I, I thought that was really interesting. But I think that there's, there may be a place for a JavaScript library out there that takes something, you know, the lessons learned in Lemonade and Bilby and Fantasyland and something like a library called Modi and, and really create something that I think would be pretty super. But I don't think that I'd be the one to do it. And I was kind of getting at, because I've heard of LazyJS now coming mm-hmm. onto the scene, which is yet another variation of underscore similar to Lodash, where they try and take, if you have a map, reduce, and filter, my understanding, the brief overview of looking into it without actually having used it, is that it'll take those and kind of curry those on together, so you only need to run through that collection once. Yeah, and I think that's definitely another way of, of extending something like Lemonade and trying to eke as much performance out of it as you can get. Efficiency, I I should say. Kind of jumping topics a little bit, but still staying in this possibly same realm, is because you've had a large experience, and I know JavaScript has this problem as well, of structuring large functional programs. I've heard people who are relatively new to functional programming complain that I have a hard time figuring out where this thing lives because it's not necessarily associated with something. Mm-hmm. as opposed to the object-oriented world, where if I have an object and then call a method on it, I'm pretty sure where that's going to be defined, or have a limited scope of where it's going to be defined, either through an interface, specific object, or possible runtime metaprogramming. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of hoping to see if you could tie in a touch on what you found in your experience of doing functional programming, and it sounds like building large-scale systems, since you said you're currently working with a distributed-style system to do this. How you found the best way for kind of structuring and organizing and modularizing some of this code? Well, yeah, I mean, in Clojure, it, it tends to be uh, via the use of something called protocols, and protocols, as you probably know, are loosely analogous to something like Java interfaces that they define a set of functions that you can then extend to existing types or types that you might be creating. And and so part of what I tried to do in functional JavaScript, especially in the last chapter, is sort of give an idea of how that would look in JavaScript. And I walk through the idea of sort of defining protocols and, and extending those protocols to structures uh, that I create and then, you know, structures that other people have created. And in, in JavaScript, they call that mix-ins, and, and it's, it's, it's not quite protocols as, as you would find in, in Clojure or ClojureScript, but I think that's probably the way that I would tackle it if I had to build big, giant applications in JavaScript, which, which I don't actually have to do. My JavaScript needs are fairly humble, especially at the moment, and the larger-scale stuff is done with Clojure and ClojureScript. 
But when I do get into the JavaScript, I, I do tend to take sort of a closure's eye view on it where you can blur your eyes a little bit and make a mix-in-based development look like protocol extension. Okay. Uh, I was kind of also wondering your opinions about structuring the functions and protocols in general as well and kind of figuring out how you... In closure, you have namespaces, but does that necessarily map to some of the generic things and structuring some of those programs, I guess. I'm not sure I'm being exactly clear, but kind of the larger functional programmings of how you would kind of group and namespace those methods together, be it Clojure or your Lisp experience or JavaScript as a whole. Well, Clojure and ClojureScript's namespaces, for their faults, still are very powerful ways of, of organizing code. And so you know, JavaScript doesn't have something like that. So what you have to do in JavaScript is sort of fake it by creating objects and, and nested objects within objects that sort of simulate a, a namespacing scheme. And so when you do extend existing types in JavaScript, you can run into problems where you're stepping on existing functions or, or methods, I guess. You know, that's, that's at the base of it. These are method calls. You can step on these existing functions and really cause a lot of problems. Whereas in Clojure and ClojureScript, that doesn't happen because the namespacing really sort of divvies up the functions in, in a logical way. But yeah, so in, in JavaScript, I don't know if there's a real easy answer, or at least, you know, even the things that underscore provides a, a mixing capability that, you know, you can really get yourself into trouble with because it's just overriding things directly in place. So you have to be really careful about that. I think it's a, the call in, in JavaScript is you, you have to be pretty disciplined because otherwise you'll find yourself stepping on your own toes or maybe just blowing off your own foot. Clojure seems to be pretty nice with the namespacing because that allows you to also only pull in those things that you want, as opposed to, I guess, JavaScript, where if you're going to include the module, you're kind of getting everything and loading that up and possibly clobbering everything else if it's not namespace correct. Is that's, that's a fair statement from what you've seen? Yeah, and I know that for future iterations of JavaScript, they really want to tackle that directly. And so, you know, I, I think that eventually that won't be as much of a problem. But at the moment, you know, there's, there's a lot of libraries out there that try to tackle this problem, and they do so to varying degrees of success and failure. So the next question is, from what I've seen, you're pretty prolific. You've got a couple books out there. I stock you on Goodreads. I've seen your Twitter feeds. I've seen your presentations where you're talking about all of this different things around the history of software. I guess the first question is, do you ever sleep, or do you just keep reading all these technical papers and books? Well, no, I don't. I actually do sleep. I like to sleep as much as I can. My kids don't always allow that to happen, but I do sleep, but I don't know. I, I, I wish that I could say that I had a, a formula could say, but there, there really isn't. I mean, I know people who read a lot more than I do, and I know people who write a lot more code than I do, and I know people who've written more books than I, than I have and blog more than I do. And I think I just sort of found this happy middle ground where I mix it up a little bit and am able to do some of everything. I don't, I don't know. That's, that's probably not actually true because there's a lot of things that I can't do at all. I'd like to learn how to play bridge, but I can't fit it into my schedule. <laughs> so... Yeah, I don't know. It's just when I try to mix it up, I mean, it keeps it interesting for me. So whenever something is interesting, I've always found that I can do it fairly quickly. And part of what I was touching on is you had a blog post which looks like it got picked up on Lifehacker, the reading for the rushed. But I also know you do a lot of technical and computer science related stuff. And it seems to be a lot of 
what I would term obscure and the general industry. How do you go about kind of figuring out what of history we learn as... Because you seem to be kind of a software historian in a sense, and I don't know if that has to do with your philosophy major as well. Maybe. I, I hadn't actually thought about it, but I think that as professionals in the software industry, I think it behooves us to know about what came before. I think even Uncle Bob talked about this. I listened to your, your first episode, and I think he hit on it. I mean, we, we work in an industry where a lot of, there are a lot of young people, and the industry itself is young, but I, I don't think that that necessarily is an excuse. But I think that he had a good point. You know, we work with people who are in their 20s and their, in their 30s and who 10 years ago were not programming and, and maybe not even thinking about programming. I know that when I was 20, I was barely thinking about it. And so it's not a problem that people don't know about what came before. It's I think where the problem comes is when you run into folks who willfully ignore what came before. And, and so I think that that's a, that's a much larger problem. You know, people who, who don't know and are willing to learn, that's good to find. I think that there are a lot of people out there like that. And, and so when I was trying to address those kinds of people with, with functional JavaScript. But there are a lot of people who will just look at it and say, well, you know, I, I, I'm doing it the way that I want to do it. And and screw that other stuff. If it if it if it had uh, if it had been so great, then it wouldn't have you know failed quote unquote thirty or forty years ago. Which I don't know. There's a lot of things that there are a lot of great things that were created thirty or forty years ago that didn't become prominent for one reason or another, and and not always were those reasons purely technical or, or merit based. So I think it, stepping back, I, I think it's, it's our responsibility to know about these things. And that being the case, I, I try to myself. Yeah, and I love seeing your feed and going through that because it kind of exposes me to things that, while I hunt on my own, would not necessarily be the things that I would think to find. So I guess one of the questions for you is, what are some of the first steps you would suggest for anybody listening to start becoming better students of history? Maybe some papers that you would recommend or some books? Because I know when you were on the Think Relevance podcast, I think it was your first episode, talking with Craig and Dara, you decided go into the bibliography, go into the references, and start digging through the things that that paper references. What would be some of the good starting points of books or papers that you would suggest people start taking at and start trying to get into to get a better understanding of where we've been? Yeah, so I actually wrote a blog post about this, and the blog post that I wrote is called something along the lines of 10 papers every programmer should read at least twice. And while there's definitely some contention about the 10 that I picked, I think that if you if you look at those papers objectively, and I did, I think that you would find a wide range of topics that are important to our industry now and moving into the future. And so yeah, I mean, my advice that I said back then is my advice now, you know, find that blog post, pick one or two papers that seem interesting, and, and they're not all long and they're not all extremely complicated. In fact, I tried to pick papers that are accessible, and some are to varying degrees more than others, but pick a couple that seem interesting, read them, understand them, and then go into the bibliography, and just by tracing those those links back to other papers that sound interesting. You could probably you could probably spend the next five years tracking down papers just by taking that simple approach. Now, would you get an idea of, of the full of the history of computing? I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't actually tried 
but I, I do follow the references, and it leads me to a lot of interesting places. And that's that's really kind of key, I think, if you if you want to get into this kind of stuff and you want to learn more, is to at least start with the things that sound super interesting, and then if that's interesting, then the things that they reference will probably be interesting to you too. Yeah, I remember seeing that blog post and have done a couple of them, and I had forgotten about it until you brought it up again. Mm-hmm. But I like that. Do you have any other good book recommendations for someone who wants to kind of understand and possibly get at a broader level across things? I believe on that podcast you also mentioned the history of programming languages, part two or volume two. Yeah, and I have volume one and volume two of that series, and and they're really good. But the problem is I'm not sure that they're always – they're out of print, I believe, and so they're sometimes hard to find and prices may be a bit high. But, you know, there's there's a lot of things out there. So – I look over at my bookshelf now. So one book that I really enjoy is is called A Programming Language. That's that's the title, A Programming Language. And it's by a gentleman named Kenneth Iverson. And in that book, he describes the idea that they need a language for describing computation. And, and the language that he describes in that book is a language called APL. I don't know if you're familiar with APL, but it is a, it's a very interesting language. And, and I understand it only partially, but I think the book itself and the way he builds up the idea of this language is is just fascinating to me. That's something I think could be had for a fairly good price, although I hope by mentioning that the, the price doesn't shoot up. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned in your last podcast structure and interpretation of computer programs, and I definitely recommend that too, and, and that's free available online. And there's a lot of really cool footnotes in that book about the history of computing and programming languages. And if, if you really find that book interesting, and about exactly half of the working programmers in the world find it interesting, the other half hate it to death. But if you're one of the kinds who likes a book like that, then reading those footnotes and endnotes and tracing down what they're talking about, you can get a really, really good idea of exactly what the history of computing looks like. And because Lisp is so important to the history of programming languages, you can get a really good idea of Lisp. It'll take a while, obviously, but all good things require work, I suppose. So there's a two right off the top of my head. Okay. I think that would give a lot of people some good starting points for going in and trying to learn about things that have been known for some years, but just either lost in the ether or lost because the machines at that point weren't suitable enough for some of the design constraints around that. As I've heard, our iPhones now are more powerful than the crazy supercomputers that NASA used to send everybody to the moon with. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or if that was war. <laughs> well, I, I think, yeah, it, it may actually still be accurate because they wrote the software to make those things work. And it's been hardened to incredible degrees. And so you, you don't just replace systems like that on a whim. But I, I think to, to jump back to the idea of books and, and think to answer in a more general way is try to find a book that was written, say, before 1990. Let's, let's take that as, a, as an example or a date. And you'll really find, and the further back you go, it's really kind of astonishing in the way that they write these books. And the authors wrote these programming books with the, the idea that they were building on knowledge that other people had explored and was important. And so somewhere around 1990, I guess, maybe at the moment, the first learn whatever in 24 hours was came off the printing press. That idea was sort of lost in programming books. And well, most, I won't say every, because I, I, I myself, I'm trying to write books that say, you know, these things 
a lot of this stuff is not new. People have blazed these trails, and, and so they're important to know about. But a lot of books are written with the idea that this is the only book ever written on the topic. And so I think a lot of readers have come to expect every book that they read starts with the Big Bang and ends with whatever they happen to be working on that week at their job. So it requires a lot of effort to really, really understand this stuff. And books just aren't written with the idea that effort might be involved. But they were at one time, and so I recommend trying to find them. They're usually penny or so, plus shipping on, on Amazon. That comment kind of reminds me of, I believe you threw it out, and I don't know if I heard it from you originally, or I had seen it around the same time that you mentioned it, and it kind of became a meme for at that time, was Alan Kay's talk about, we're not computer scientists, we're pop programmers. Yeah, I think that was Alan Kay. That's definitely who I associate with it. Yeah, you know, he... He has a good point, and I really admire Alan Kay, and I try to listen and read whatever he happens to be saying and, and writing, and uh, I think he has a really good point, and I think that as the years go by, that prophecy, I guess, becomes more apparent. Yeah, your 24 hours and the 1990 date was kind of the, well, let's learn this thing instead of let's learn why this thing is or the fundamental ideas of this thing versus just... Learn VB so you can get stuff done. Yeah. As opposed to learn VB and understand how to get stuff done, whether it's VB or something else. Right. You know, programming languages don't exist in a vacuum. They exist within a context that I think is sort of not really well understood. And so any programming language, be it VB or, or BASIC or, or JavaScript or Clojure, you know, they exist because there was either something lacking in existing programming languages or those programming languages didn't even address the kinds of problems or the problems that they solved didn't exist until, and so they, they prompted a language. So there is a historical context to every, every programming language, and I don't think that a lot of people, there are some people, and, and I've met them and, and talked to them, and they really do get it, that there is a historical context to what we do, and that context is important, but there are a lot of people who don't agree, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, it's kind of those frustrating things. I got laid off about a year and three months, a year and a half ago. And it was one of those kind of working with the recruiters where it's like, do you know this specific technology? And it's one of those, it's kind of frustrating from the person who's trying to get into the historical side of computer programming as well of saying, I may not know that specific thing, but I've worked to understand some of the fundamentals of that thing, which could be applied across technologies, whether or not it's this ORM particular or this MVC framework. Yeah, and I'm sure that when you say that kind of stuff, their eyes sort of gloss over because they're looking for, for certain terms. And, and so, yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. I think as programmers, the more experience that you become in general and the more experience that you get across certain kinds of languages allows you to pick up new languages fairly quickly. And so just because I happen to know I'm actually very competent in, in Java. I've done a lot of Java programming. That doesn't mean anything for approaching a new application written in Java and understanding what that application does. I mean, all it allows me to do is, is sort of not spend some time looking up syntax fiddly bits. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think the recruiters would understand that, but there are companies out there who do. But they're few and far between, I think. Yeah, and it was one of those just kind of It'd be nice to start seeing more people in the industry and the companies that employ the people understand that concept a little better than just check checkbox on a field. Yeah, you're right. But I, I think that there's some encouragement in that. I think that there are more now than there used to be. 
But maybe that's because there are more technology companies in general. I don't know. Yeah. So, getting close to wrapping up, I don't know how up-to-date your site is with the subsection of fun. Okay. But you had, under your writings and blog posts and stuff, that it looked like there was a book with an abbreviation, kind of a work in progress. Is that still something possible, or is that something you would care to tease about? Well, yeah, there's... I can talk a little bit about it. I had put together a book that was about Scheme, I guess, but it wasn't really about Scheme. It used Scheme to sort of talk about the history of programming languages and concepts and paradigms and blah, blah, blah. And part of that book was about functional programming. And so when the idea of writing functional JavaScript came around, I I sort of ripped that stuff out and repurposed a lot of the examples and the evolutionary ideas. You know, you you start with these low-level things and you build up to bigger things. I sort of repurposed that for the functional JavaScript book. But then there's this, there's this whole, and it's not a complete book by any means. It's sort of a glorified outline, I guess you would say. But there's this historical side that maybe one day I'll turn into a book, but at the moment I'm sort of burned out on writing books. The second edition of Joy of Closure has just about wrapped up. I think there's like two more sentences that need to be fixed, and then it'll start going to, to production. So I'm pretty burned out about writing books, so I don't know when that'll happen, if, if ever. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I knew you were... I've got the early access of the Joy of Closure version 2 and was appreciating that, but I didn't want to press you on that as well. Ah, no worries. So I guess wrapping up, is there anything you would like to plug? Do you have any upcoming appearances that you know about? People can find you? Projects you're involved with that you'd want to push? Publicize? Any more recommendations in general you think our audience should know about or appreciate? Well, I don't know. Let me think. Regarding things I'm working on, I recently gave a talk at the latest Closure Conference, and there's a video of my talk released. And it's it's about sort of historical things, a little bit. It's about a system that I've, I'm working on called Zeta, which is a production rules system written in Closure. And if you can get past my high-pitched squealy voice in that video, I think that there might be some interesting bits in there. Uh, recommendations? Uh, I don't know. I, I I talked about the computer side. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll recommend a couple non-technical books. A couple that that jump to mind that I really love is a book called Infinite Jest. But it's it's a big book and it's it's a bit of a it, it messes with your head, I guess you should say, to put it to put it lightly. But I enjoy it very much and I recommend it to everyone. And, and another book that's similar to that is A House of Leaves. And it's, I guess it's a horror book, but it doesn't read like a genre book, I guess you would say. It's, it's a puzzle. And I've always enjoyed reading that book. And every time I do, it, a little bit of the puzzle becomes more apparent. So I, I would recommend those two books. Okay. Sounds like good recommendations. I'll probably have to go check out those two other books you threw out and just see if that would have hit my appreciation. Likely something different is always good. Yeah. So where can people find you online if they'd like to follow you? www.fogus.me, F-O-G-U-S dot M-E. And that's sort of the jumping off point, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I figured I'd put some links in the show notes for it. So I'll just go with that. Great. Let them navigate from there for anybody who's interested in finding you in other places. Yeah, or or put on the blacklist. <laughs> and I'd spell it out really clearly so it can go either way. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. I want to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thanks to Focus for giving your time to me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.